Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, all, and welcome to this Heritage program. My name is Paul J. Larkin, Jr., I am a fellow in the Mies Center, and I have the distinct privilege of being your host for today. Before I say anything else, I want to thank you for tuning into today's program. You have many ways that you can spend your time, and I appreciate and Heritage appreciates your willingness to spend some of that time with us today. Doing so gives you the opportunity to learn about an important but underappreciated subject, the driving uh, the problem of driving under the influence of drugs. Safely driving a motor vehicle is a complex activity. Most of us take it for granted because we've been doing it since 16. But in fact, it demands alertness, divided yet wide-ranging attention, sustained concentration, and the ability to process quickly visual, auditory, and kinesthetic information. Science teaches us that operating a vehicle under the influence of alcohol impairs our ability to drive safely. It demonstrably inhibits our ability to track, to pay attention, to detect signals, to perceive risks, to react quickly, and to concentrate, as well as the ability to engage in hand-eye coordination. Prompted by the advocacy of organizations such as Mothers Against Drug Driving, society no longer deems alcohol-impaired driving merely a peccadillo. As a result, we have successfully lowered the carnage that alcohol-impaired driving had caused. Unfortunately, what many people do not realize is that also, according to contemporary science, drugs other than alcohol can have the same impairing effect and make driving equally hazardous. The reason is that some drugs, even ones that are lawful to use, even ones that can be purchased by a prescription or over-the-counter, can impair the same skills needed to drive safely that alcohol deteriorates. Moreover, this problem is not an isolated phenomenon. Drug-impaired driving is far more prevalent than most people realize. Now, don't take my word for it. Different presidential administrations have found that drug-impaired driving is a major problem. For example, a few years ago, the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration found that in 2017, 12.6 million people aged 16 or older drove under the influence of a psychoactive substance such as heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, or cannabis. Those drivers put their passengers, the occupants of other vehicles, pedestrians, and themselves at the same risk of death or grievous bodily injury that alcohol-impaired drivers pose. In fact, in 2010, the Obama administration concluded that drug-impaired driving, quote, demands a response on a legal equivalent, on, excuse me, on a level equivalent to the highly successful effort to prevent drug driving. The person who reached that conclusion was Gil Kurlikowski, one of today's speakers. What has happened is that our response to drug-impaired driving has lagged behind developments in the facts and the law. The opioid epidemic has led to an increase in the number of drivers impaired by drugs like heroin or who are jonesing for a fix. 
polydrug use, that is the use of multiple psychoactive substances, including alcohol, has increased the number of people who drive when they should not. And the decision by numerous states to legalize cannabis for medical or recreational use has led to an increase in fatalities in states like Colorado, which legalized recreational marijuana nearly a decade ago. To save innocent lives, public policy regarding drug-impaired driving must catch up quickly. We hope to help that project along by allowing you to hear from four experts on the problems that drug use causes. With me today are four former directors of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and they are welcome now to join me on screen. The position they once held is colloquially referred to as that of a drug czar, but there is nothing colloquial or unimportant about the job they held. Allow me to introduce each one in the order they will speak, from the earliest to the most recent administrations. First, we have Dr. Robert DuPont. He served as the ONDCP director in the Nixon and Ford administrations. Dr. DuPont is currently president of the Institute for Behavior and Health, a nonprofit research organization dedicated to reducing the use of illegal drugs and improving prevention and treatment. He graduated from Harvard Medical School and completed his psychiatric training at Harvard and the National Institutes of Health. He now is on the faculty of Georgetown Medical Center. Following him is former U.S. Army General Barry McCaffrey. He was the ONDCP director in the Clinton administration. Barry is a very highly decorated war veteran. He was twice awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, twice awarded the Silver Star, and three times awarded the Purple Heart. He is currently president of his own consulting firm, B.R. McCaffrey Associates, LLC, and is a national security analyst for NBC News. He graduated from West Point. He later received a master's degree from American University, and he attended Harvard University's National Security Program and its Business School Executive Education Program. Up third is the Honorable Gil Kurlikowski. He served as drug czar in the Obama administration. Gil is a non-resident fellow at the Baker Institute Mexico Center, specializing in border issues. During his time in the Obama administration, Gil authored the 2010 President's National Drug Control Strategy, in which he identified drug-impaired driving as being as major a problem as alcohol-impaired driving. He has had a distinguished 40-year career as a law enforcement officer and executive, including a stint as Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. He holds a B.A. and an M.A. from the University of South Florida. Batting cleanup is the Honorable James Carroll, Jr. He served as drug czar in the Trump administration. James had previously served in a variety of roles in the Trump administration, including Deputy Chief of Staff to the President, and previously he had served in several different capacities in the George W. Bush administration including Deputy General Counsel at the Department of Treasury. James holds a BA from the University of Virginia and a JD from George Mason Law School. As you can see, we have a bipartisan panel. Why? Because the issue at hand is important to everyone. We all are or should be interested in reducing the carnage on our roadways caused by the people who drive while impaired by drugs. 
whether that drug is alcohol, an illicit drug, or a pharmaceutical that can be received under a prescription. What type of drug impairs a driver matters not at all to a crash victim, particularly one killed in a crash. Today's program will proceed as follows. Each panelist will make opening remarks in the order I mentioned. Next will come a moderated discussion involving all four panelists. We will conclude with audience questions. If you are watching and have a question, please submit it in the question box found in your toolbar on the right-hand side. We hope that you will find today's program substantive and constructive. With that, I will turn it over to Dr. DuPont. Bob, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Paul, for leading this important Heritage Foundation event. The Institute for Behavior and Health, of which I am president, is proud to be a co-sponsor with you and with Heritage in this event. I am proud to be making this presentation with three fellow former drug czars, each of whom I greatly admire. Not included in my official bio is my claim that I am likely to be the only person who has worked with every one of the 17 leaders who have held the White House Drug Office since it was established by executive order on June 17, 1971. No other national priority has held an office in the White House over those tumultuous five decades. This reflects the importance of the modern drug epidemic that began in the late 1960s and continues to evolve. This epidemic is destined to extend far into the future. The congressional legislation that formally established the first White House Drug Office, Public Law 92-255, was passed March 21, 1972, with unanimous support from both parties. Bipartisanship, as you have emphasized already, Paul, has been central to the US drug policy over all of those years. Bipartisanship is, of course, reflected also in our panel today. Two of us former drug czars served under Republican presidents and two under Democratic presidents. The establishment of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP, was a major milestone. That legislation was led in the Senate by Joseph Biden, who came to the Senate in 1973, the same year that I became the second White House drug czar. I was also the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. In that role, I oversaw the publication of a research monograph on drugs and driving we published in 1977. I would like to call your attention uh, to the briefing document of this meeting in, in, entitled Drug Impaired Driving. It lays out the key facts about drug driving. All of us will be referring to that and to the IBH website, www.stopdrugdriving.org, which has become a national uh, resource on this topic. Policies to address driving under the influence of drugs, DUID, build on the nation's 100 plus year old effort to reduce driving under the influence of alcohol. This hard work to address drunk driving is a major public health and public safety triumph. In summary, efforts to reduce drug DUID do not compete with efforts to reduce alcohol impaired driving. Instead, they support, reinforce, and extend the success made against alcohol impaired driving. And as you have mentioned, Paul, in the beginning, polysubstance use is growing. It is a new challenge. It changes the ballpark 
Many drivers have multiple impairing drugs on board, just as impaired driving isn't just about alcohol, drug driving isn't just about cannabis, though that is the most widely used impairing drug other than alcohol. Drug driving includes both illegal and legal drugs, including impairing prescription drugs. There are many good new ideas that I want to put on the table for our discussion today. My top six priorities are these. Number one, public education about the dangers of drug driving without heightened awareness by drivers, little progress can be made. The education needs to come from the media, legislation, and government practices. Don't drunk, don't drug and drive should be as widely known and endorsed as don't drink and drive. Together, we can build our century on our century of experience with alcohol and bear driving to confront this new and rapidly growing polydrug reality in impaired driving. Number two, every driver arrested for impaired driving and every seriously injured or fatally injured driver should be tested for the most commonly used drugs in addition to alcohol. This will require both law enforcement training and adequate funding of laboratories. Number three, oral fluid testing technology must be widely used to identify drugs in all drivers arrested for impaired driving. Roadside oral fluid testing for drugs is as easy as roadside testing for alcohol. And like tests for alcohol, preliminary positive findings can be confirmed in the laboratory. It is essential to note that before police officer pulls over a driver, the officer must have reasonable suspicion of a driving infraction, and there must also be probable cause before testing for alcohol or other drugs. These are not random testing, it's testing after a driver has been pulled over for impaired driving. Number four, we must put to rest the common belief that we need to wait for a 0 .08 BAC equivalent for cannabis and other drugs. This is not scientifically possible because unlike alcohol, there is no measurable stable relationship between blood and, ether, or, and other tissue levels of an impairment. That's a very important point that we don't need more research to solve this problem. You cannot solve the problem by having a BAC equivalent for other drugs. Cannabis is not the outlier. Alcohol is the outlier in that distinction. Number five, we must help individuals who arrested for DUIA and DUID access the resources they need to address their problematic alcohol and drug use. The road from active addiction to long-term stable recovery <clears throat> commonly begins with a painful crisis resulting from problematic substance use. An impaired driving arrest and the subsequent legal consequences is a major crisis that changes many lives for the better when linked to appropriate services, including substance abuse treatment and recovery support. Sixth and finally, I urge ONDCP and the Biden administration to make reducing DUID a high priority. A first step is a report from ONDCP reviewing what is known about DUID and making recommendations for how to improve our efforts, including learning from other nations. Both the House and the Senate should hold hearings this year on DUID to develop national bipartisan strategic plans 
to reduce the serious threat to public safety and public health. Thank you, and back to you, Paul. Bob, thank you very much. We'll now go next to former General Barry McCaffrey. Barry, it's yours. Well, uh, thanks very much uh, to Heritage for co-sponsoring this and bringing us all together. Uh, and Paul, for your uh, organizational ability to make the webinar happen. And Bob DuPont, who's been a friend for, God, I don't know, 30 or 40 years now. Uh, one of my original tutors, mentors, ongoing uh, support and understanding the drug issue uh, since my uh, period of 96 to 2001, uh, acting as a White House Drug Policy Director. And I, I do associate myself with uh, Bob's opening remarks. I think they're entirely on, on the mark. And also Gil Kurlikowski and uh, Jim Carroll. It's interesting, this issue, there's been such intense partisanship in Washington, something that I barely understand from a, my first 40 years in life, um, and yet it hadn't affected the relationship uh, between those of us who were charged with this responsibility. And I had great respect for both Gil and his background and, and Jim also uh, for what they managed to achieve in a very tough policy arena. Uh, look, um, some sort of brief opening comments, one of which is obviously uh, we're now facing twin pandemics. On the one hand, we've got the highest loss of life of drug deaths from overdose, 82,000 people in the country's history. And on the other hand, we've got a half million and probably going to 700,000 by this summer uh, deaths from uh, COVID. Uh, it's been another nightmare and it's shut down a good bit of the economy. It's closed the court system, the drug treatment court system in particular have, have collapsed. Uh, they're struggling to reopen. Our treatment programs are in disarray. It's been an utter flipping nightmare. Uh, we're coming out of it. One can see a light at the end of the tunnel by this summer, uh, but it's been very tough to get a national conversation on any issue uh, other than, than dealing with the, with the COVID uh, challenge we're facing. Uh, let me throw out uh, some brief ideas. And again, I, I sort of defer to Gill's expertise, particularly in law enforcement, and Bob in the in the science of this issue. Uh, but first of all, the whole DUID has been an underrated issue. It's not front of mind. Uh, the drug legalizers have tried to prevent us from even collecting data on what happens when drug impaired uh, driving becomes widespread. Uh, but I'll throw out a number, $132 billion, a massive problem, 10 to 11,000 dead, maybe 28% of all traffic accidents, uh, probably 57% of all fatalities have a driver impaired by either alcohol or drugs or both. And as Bob mentioned, it's polydrug abuse. It's a huge problem. It's worthy of policy analysis. Secondly, we got to understand uh, when, when it comes to deterrence, law enforcement or others, the chance of being caught are extremely low. Every day, 300,000 people, Americans, drive impaired, 2,800 get arrested. You're probably not going to get stopped. You're probably going to get away with it. You're probably not going to kill somebody. Uh, third observation, uh, the, there's been a dramatic increase 
in drug impaired driving. I don't think we know the half of it. When a police officer pulls you over, if you test positive for uh, alcohol, probably the investigation stops and would not then discover that you're also using opioids or pot or whatever. So I think it's uh, probably dramatically uh, undercounted. There's, as Bob mentioned, there's no reliable test. Uh, and therefore, I don't think we understand the dimensions of the problem. Fourth problem, uh, normally I'm dealing, the, the issues I deal with uh, affect substance abuse disorder, the chronically addicted, uh, the lack of impulse control, a life in total uh, chaos. And when it comes to impaired driving, that is, uh, that is not necessarily what we're dealing with. Pot users, 20.9% are daily users. Alcohol, 6.5%. So if we get somebody on impaired driving, it's not necessarily the case that we can use the existing drug treatment programs uh, to correct their behavior. Fifth uh, observation, this is uh, you know an unusual one. The consequences of driving under the influence of either alcohol or drugs are serious, but not consequential. Unlike Sweden and some other uh, societies, you don't automatically impound the person's car, even if they're the non-owner, uh, except for the law enforcement or the military, the consequences just are not catastrophic. So they're not very deterrent. Another observation, uh, Bob mentioned it, is uh, basically it's polydrug abuse we're dealing with. And that's ju not just in driving impaired, but also in the treatment community. Uh, seventh issue, pot is a key issue. It's a political hot potato. It's a hot stove. Politicians run for their life. Uh, they don't want us to collect data on the extent of the problem. Pot is now widely available, is largely destigmatized. Pot is amusing. Alcohol abuse is uh, foolish. Uh, we're in an odd situation where something that is a tremendously harmful effects of pot are not acknowledged in the public uh, debate. Eighth observation, uh, a small subset of offenders are repeat offenders. It's just un unbelievable. Once a month here in Seattle, somebody gets busted and it's been nine drunk driving or drug impaired driving offenses. And they finally kill somebody. So our inability to get the chronic offender off the roads is, is something early on that has to be addressed. Ninth observation, there's really no political will to deter first offenders. Uh, we all know that we, I think we've learned over time that it's not the severity of punishment that deters people, it's the likelihood of punishment. And so, you know, I think particularly the notion of somebody who's not a chronic uh, addict or a chronic drunk, uh, there's just no deterrence measures. Tenth observation, law enforcement in this country is now overwhelmed, stigmatized, under-resourced, and unwilling to confront misdemeanor offenses in many cases. Uh, the, one of the more effective law enforcement tools, Gil can talk to this, are mobile weekend nighttime roadblocks that test randomly. It creates an atmosphere where designated drivers, that sort of thing, uh, now appear. And law enforcement's not going to take that on. Uh, they get a bunch of guff. They're under-resourced. It's not there as a tool. 
11th, and I think this is a tough one, there's no political will really to collect fluids as evidence. Um, there's an easily administered breathalyzer test, but I think the political barriers to collecting fluids uh, at a roadside arrest are, are remote. And then finally, I, this is a difficult one to deal with. This isn't a federal issue. This is a state, municipal, and county issue. That's where the legislation is involved. Uh, feds can frequently do targeted funding, uh, but we need state law, state resources, and state political will to take on the, the issue. Now, look, I spent a couple of years in military hospital during the Vietnam era. <clears throat> I was on a ward where <clears throat> of young officers, primarily, who were mangled in combat. Our morale was incredibly high. It was astonishing. We loved the medical team taking care of us. Uh, we thought our lives were going to get progressively better and we'd get back to our families and to work in some form. And every week, weekend, someone else would show up on the ward mangled in a drunk driving issue. I remember a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, his ribs cage smashed. He had killed somebody. He later died on our ward. A gravitational drainage for the poor man. To, you know, he, it was just an unbelievable end. And it just underscored to us the senseless slaughter on the nation's highways, not just of the chronic drunk or, or drug-impaired driver, but the people they hit. It's a conversation the country needs to have. What are we going to do about this based on science and common sense? I look forward to ideas coming out of this group uh, today. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Gil, you're up at the plate now. Good. Well, it's an honor to be with my colleagues, uh, and it's very tough to follow both Bob and, uh, and, uh, and Barry. Uh, on this. Uh, I appreciate the support of Heritage and the Institute uh, as we uh, bring this issue back more into the light, uh, especially as we see, as you mentioned, light at the end of the tunnel with COVID because the issues of overdose and the issues of DUID are still really significant, not only to people's health, but also to our economy. So during my tenure, which was 2009 to 14, you know, I had the opportunity to meet with every former director of ONDCP. And it was great because all of those meetings were in person. Uh, frankly, I can hardly wait until we get back to some in-person meetings. I benefited a lot from meeting with them. I gained firsthand knowledge about the problems that my predecessors had, uh, as well as the attention and the focus that they all brought to the problem of drugs, it was both domestically and internationally. And at that time, the discussion around drugged driving or driving under the influence of drugs, it really wasn't a focus. Both my predecessor, John Walters, and my immediate predecessor, General McCaffrey, had started the discussion. Uh, and generally, it was as a result of the increase in the legality and use of what was called medical marijuana. When I first assumed the position of ONDCP director, there wasn't significant public awareness of or attention to the crisis of opioids. Uh, outside of subject matter experts. It just really wasn't publicized. 
We now know that with the exception of COVID-19 pandemic, opioid addiction is the second greatest health crisis. It's taking lives, costing millions of dollars. We also faced the legalization of recreational marijuana, very different from medical marijuana, in two states through referendums, Colorado and Washington. And together, both prescription drugs and marijuana have given rise to the increased danger on our roads by drivers under the influence. Well, my remarks are focused more on the use of marijuana by drivers, although other drugs and the combination of alcohol and drugs certainly deserve recognition and attention. As others have or will point out, the detection of marijuana by drivers involved in fatal traffic accidents has really increased. The problems are threefold, in my opinion. First, there's a resounding lack of readily available, excuse me, cost-effective technology to detect marijuana prevalence in a driver. We know that without standardized testing equipment that has thoroughly been proven in both science and the courts, convictions for related driving offenses are hard to obtain. One of the most lucrative areas of criminal law defense is in DUI cases. And even experienced and well-trained officers using breath testing equipment have seen alcohol cases dismissed or reduced under intense uh, defense scrutiny. Well, second, getting the public's attention to DUID violations has proven difficult. We have seen advocacy for marijuana legalization continue to increase in public polling without concomitant uh, discussion about the dangers of driving under the influence. Much to their credit, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and other advocacy groups have brought significant public attention to alcohol-impaired driving. And these organizations should take the same aggressive posture to DUID. Community organizations, advertising, victim panels have all made alcohol-impaired driving a subject of community concern. And I held discussions with some of these groups but I found them to be resistant to including drug driving as part of their agenda. There were several reasons for this, but I thought as a nation, we were missing an opportunity to label DUID with the same negative image that DUI had obtained. In addition, changes in laws have made the conviction of operating a motor vehicle above a certain blood alcohol limit easier to obtain. That is why per se laws involving marijuana are needed in each state. And third, the issue goes really far beyond law enforcement. We know that over several years, drivers training classes at American high schools have been eliminated or reduced, or they've been outsourced to the private for pay sector. These classes provide an excellent opportunity to educate new drivers about the dangers of marijuana use in operating a motor vehicle. Other partners besides schools need to be engaged. I could not have a better partner in our effort than Secretary Ray LaHood at the Department of Transportation. He was focused, and rightly so, on distracted driving, the use of cell phones and texting while driving, but also about cockpit engineering in vehicles whose screens and software distracted a driver's attention. When I met with him and his staff, he took DUID on with energy. 
and both the Department of Transportation and the National Highway Traffic Safety Agency became great partners. NHTSA pushed the effort for better data through roadside surveys. Well, since being away from ONDCP and law enforcement, I haven't focused on the issues of DUID. Perhaps that is also indicative that as a country and a government, both at the state and local level and at the national level, we have not put the same time, energy, and effort into reducing a problem that really demands public awareness. The time for action is now. Gil, thank you very much. James, you're batting cleanup. Boy, this is tough. Um, all the smart people went first and said all the great ideas. Um, first, I really <laughs> would like to thank Heritage and especially you, Paul, for hosting this important event. And I really am honored um, to be with Bob, Barry, and Gil. It's been a real blessing to have them as predecessors. Um, They're really the ones responsible for making certain that we as a country are focused on stopping the flow of drugs, teaching prevention, and really treating addiction as the disease that we know it is. I'm also blessed to call them my friends. They were always there when I wanted advice, and they started the example that I was able to follow that this is not a bipartisan issue, this is a nonpartisan issue. And so I, that's one thing that we can agree on. I think the other is that we can agree that the staff of ONDCP are just a brilliant and passionate group. And I think we were all really lucky to work with them. Really, I do wanna sort of focus on the um, conversation about marijuana since that's so much um, in the national debate right now. And teens especially, I think are receiving mixed messages on the role of marijuana in our society. And as states legalize this as medicinal or recreational, people have the perception that it's just that, that it's a recreation, that it's a fun activity, or that it's just a medicine. And they think that it's natural. They think that it's eco-friendly. Um, and what they don't realize is that there are real use um, risk associated with its use. To go slightly off topic, um, one thing that I did want to mention is the black market. And what's never really discussed is the use of banned pesticides and herbicides on the vast amounts of illegally grown marijuana, which is a real issue. Um, I snapped a few pictures, which I think Heritage is going to flash um, up now. And the picture on the left um, is um, where they're both taken from an illegal um, grow site in California. And you can see on the left, these are banned herbicides and pesticides um, that were um, found discarded there at the grow site. You can see that they're in Spanish. These grow sites, these are not by hippies out in California. These are Mexican cartels coming across the border with these banned herbicides and pesticides that are strong enough. Um, they found dead bears um, around these, some of the grow sites there. And God knows, you know, by the time it actually reaches the end user. On the right side, you can see a couple of the marijuana plants and um, that straight black line at the base of the plant is eagerly, legally diverted water resources from a beautiful stream in the California forest um, to water the marijuana plants. And therefore the vegetation around it is being poisoned and it's also being cut off um, from the natural resources. And that's something that really is not discussed and may be worthy of a future topic. But to get back to today, I think that's it for the slides. Um, the other issue 
that we really you know, need to talk about is this, about the impaired driving and the risk. There's so much confusion about this topic and it's, really, it's leading to risky behavior. Mentioned it a bit um, by one of the predecessors here that you know, right now there really is a societal taboo on the use of alcohol and drinking. And that really doesn't exist um, for drugs. Right now, you know, pretty much everyone understands their alcohol limit, and they know, hopefully, to cut themselves off when they get there. And they also know to cut others off. And this is true among teens and millennials that they would never dream of letting a friend get behind the wheel of a car if they were intoxicated on alcohol. Most people would call an Uber or drive their friend home, but there's not the same societal taboo on consuming drugs and getting behind the wheel. So you don't know your limit. And that's what's also scary is you don't even know what you're consuming. So whether you're smoking, vaping, or consuming marijuana, there's usually no awareness of what's in there, including the THC content. And this is especially true for the black market, which we know is flourishing. There's really a very small black on alcohol right now, um, but it's flourishing across the country for illegal illicit marijuana. There's also a course on alcohol. If you look at um, your can of beer or you look at a bottle of booze in your closet, you'll see that there's a warning label that talks about the dangers of consuming alcohol and driving or operating heavy machinery that doesn't exist for the legal, for the illicitly purchased marijuana. And why not? These are the things that we need to discuss as a country to making sure that there is awareness. And I'm really honored I'm partnering with, STAT, with SAD, the Students Against Destructive Decisions, to help spread the gospel of prevention, to talk about the very real issues of drugged driving. And SAD and I are now partnering with the Colorado Department of Transportation to build a peer-to-peer -peer program and awareness campaign on this topic. And I really think that is where we're going to find the results to be the most promising. We know peer-to-peer -peer recovery for other drugs works extremely well. And I think the peer-to-peer -peer awareness of the dangers of impaired driving will work well as well. The program launches in April, and I'm excited to see the results and see how we can fine-tune this and bring it across the country. But what else needs to be done? There needs to be more research. We've talked about that already, and we need to understand the extent of the problem. Research done already by Liberty Mutual and SAD found that one-third of all teens, exactly 33%, perceive that it's legal to drive under the influence of marijuana in states where it's been legalized. That's really scary. They think it's legal. 27% of adults believe it to be legal as well. And the other percentage that came out of this study is that 93% of parents found driving under the influence of alcohol to be dangerous, but only 75% believed it to be dangerous to drive under the influence of marijuana. So clearly there's much more work to be done. 
I'm proud to partner with SAD and I'm really proud to partner with Heritage and my predecessors to make sure that we're addressing this as a real national issue. Paul, back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you all. Um, let me first, before I ask any questions, I, I just have a few to find out if uh, Bob, Barry, or Gil have anything they would like to add in light of uh, what they've heard. Okay, then let me ask you this. There are a very small number of people in Washington, D.C. who can have a major effect on this issue. President Joe Biden is one. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is another. If either or both called you up on a phone and said, tell me three things that I can do this year, right now, what would the three things be? I'll start off, if that's okay. Uh, if, if uh, President Biden uh, can use certainly the bully pulpit of the White House uh, to bring attention to this, We've seen presidents uh, bring attention to the opioid issue. Uh, under General McCaffrey, we saw presidents bring attention to the cocaine uh, issues and the distribution. Well, here is a particular issue that the president could do. And I think the delegation or the, the finger pointing toward the Department of Transportation uh, would be a second uh, important Point. Remember, too, that uh, uh, President Biden has uh, granddaughters. Uh, he's got, uh, he can really, uh, I, I think, relate uh, to this issue. Those are the two things I'd see, and I'm going to let my colleagues uh, expand in other areas. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited about uh, oral fluids testing. Uh, that's a game changer uh, in terms of uh, uh, DUID. Uh, because it, it lets the, the uh, testing go right to the roadside, just the way we do with, with alcohol. Uh, when we had urine testing as what we we're doing or blood testing, you've got a big barrier to get the test. To get a saliva sample is, is very easy for uh, police officers to do at a time of arrest. And so uh, I, I'm very excited about the recent demonstration of how this can be integrated within routine uh, traffic stops. But the concept is that every driver who is arrested for impaired driving and every fatally injured driver uh, and seriously injured driver needs to be tested for drugs. And several of, of us have talked about the fact that we need more data. One of the things that's happened is when you get to a BAC 0.08, the, the testing stops. We need to test all those people for the, for the drugs. And when that's done systematically, we'll have a lot better understanding of things and we'll understand just how widespread the problem is of poly drug use and, and how, uh, uh, where we stand. But the oral fluids testing, I think, is, is really a game changer. It also gets away from the problem with marijuana that people will have a positive uh, metabolite present for a long time after they use. That doesn't happen with oral fluids, which just tests for THC. So you, you take away a lot of the controversy by moving to the oral fluids testing. I guess I would add, um, and this is something that Barry touched on, is right now what we're seeing is such a dramatic increase in fatal overdoses. We're also seeing a similar rise in suicides. So as soon as it's safe to do so, to open up the economy, to make sure that people can get the treatment that they need, 
that the kids are able to get the prevention messaging that they need so they don't go down this path. And so as soon as possible, you know, to be able to lift the morale of folks so that people aren't reverting back, um, you know, to their addiction and making sure that there, if there's fewer people using, there'll be fewer people driving under the influence. The other thing that I would really like to see is a national um, awareness of some of the great work being done by law enforcement these days. And what we know is that law enforcement were the first ones to really push for diversion courts to make sure that people are not going to jail for their addiction. And they are the ones you know, saying that we need to get those courts back open. And there's also so many groups that are out there. And I think of PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative up in New England. And there are several others like that, that if they encounter someone out on the street, not behind the wheel of a car or engaging in um, other criminal behavior, but if they encounter someone under the influence, they're taking them to get help. They're taking them to get treatment. And that's really um, the vast majority of police these days. They truly want to serve their community. And by doing that, they'll also be able to not have those people behind the wheel because they'll be um, headed to what is hopefully a lifetime of recovery. Let me, uh, let me add a thought. Um, and by the way, that Department of Transportation thing that Jill mentioned is a Huge deal. I, the number six in my mind is there's nine million truckers engaged in interstate commerce that are subject to mandatory drug testing when they have a giant accident, among other things. Uh, and it's had, although we still have huge problems in the interstate commerce, uh, but as a general statement, it's not a nightmare as it is perhaps in Mexico and other places. So Transportation, the other departments of government beyond HHS and justice uh, do have a role to play. And uh, the second thought, you know, I know uh, President Biden fairly well, admire him enormously, a decent, civil, experienced, thoughtful man. The people he's bringing into government are almost across the board experts who are people of character. So we've got a good team showing up. But uh, we're still in an era of intense, mindless partisanship. And so I don't expect President Biden to call me and ask about taking on anything that has a whiff of opposition to pot consumption. It's a political red herring. Uh, they don't want to get near it. Uh, the Obama administration didn't, in my view, face up to it either. Uh, and so it's going to be a going to be a tough issue. And, and, you know, as Bob correctly says, if you get an oral drug testing roadside check that scientifically and legally works, it'd be a huge game changer. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, so I'm a little bit skeptical and pessimistic about our ability to address uh, what in general is pot impaired driving on the nation's highways that are slaughtering thousands of people a year. Well, that is very interesting. That brings up uh, my next question. Um, after I ask this, I'm going to turn to some audience questions. But we have now perhaps 50 years of experience uh, with efforts to address the alcohol impaired driving problem. What can we learn from the way those people 
who were supporting that movement address this problem because they faced opposition as well. Who are the people that are likely to oppose uh, any effort to deal with drug impaired driving? And what can we learn from the way MAD and others addressed the alcohol impaired driving to help deal with this side of the problem? And that is a like the old GE College Bowl. It's a toss up for any anybody and everybody. Well, I think the first thing I would say is it's really a hundred year effort, not a 50 year effort to deal with alcohol. And you, you look at what troubles there were along the way with that. I mean, that is, that, that's a cautionary tale about how hard this is. I think it's also very striking to me uh, that we, we need to get the people who are uh, promoting drug use uh, in various ways, including the sellers, uh, to, to own up to the fact that it is a serious problem in terms of driving the way the alcohol industry has been dragged, kicking and screaming, but have done a good job, I think, basically, uh, in this area. Uh, it's in their interest uh, to do that and to, to come together and say, we're talking about impaired driving uh, and, uh, and we, we want to work together on this. So I think there is a, a, a real hope here to build on what's happened with, uh, uh, with alcohol. Uh, in the drugs, but but it's uh, it's it's an uphill climb, and and the events that have happened with alcohol have all to do with getting the media involved in it and getting the public engaged, and I think that's what's going to have to happen here. Uh, the and, and let's uh, Gil Kierlikowski used the term oxygen talking to me about DUI. You know, where's the oxygen? I think the oxygen comes from the uh, from from the deaths and the and the stories of the people whose lives have been. Uh, uh, ended or ruined by uh, by drug drivers, and I, I think that's going to happen again. Okay, well, let me turn then to some questions from. Hey, oh, uh, may I add one other thing? One of the bizarre, oh, of one of the bizarre aspects of being a drug policy director is I learned about money. I never paid much attention to money in the armed forces. They gave me some, and it, but in the in drug policy, nineteen billion dollars, if I remember, and nine different appropriations. Uh, bills were things that I monitored and tried to help department secretaries rationalize. And I've soon learned that, you know, some General Powell used to tell us in the Pentagon, smart people in Washington don't argue about policy or white papers or strategy. They argue about dollars. And, <laughs> the, you know, on the drug issue, it's just astonishing. Uh, you can't address the drug issue without addressing mental health. Uh, there are two sides, as I've learned from Bob DuPont, there are two sides of the same coin. And yet the warring factions, I was seen as the plenipotentiary of the drug side in a war against mental health. And you see the same thing when it comes to something as straightforward about thousands of people being killed in the nation's highways. I once had a little tiff with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, one of the most remarkable, successful uh, organizations and behavioral health in the last hundred years, they wanted my money for alcohol. And But ONDCP's enabling legislation says we're not supposed to deal with alcohol abuse. It's a, it carve out most powerful people in the country aren't sheriffs or uh, police chiefs. They're the regional beer distributors who know that people drinking beer are college kids and the armed forces, underage, and they're stiffing it to them. 
So we've got a budgetary problem also uh, that I think ONDCP is positioned to help with. Where does federal dollars really go and can we get a flow of dollars to the technology issues of impaired driving uh, and, and to influence states? But again, I'm color me a bit pessimistic <laughs> about, about getting the Biden administration to forcefully face up to anything where the what you hear is they're after pot impaired driving. We're now up to 16 departments and um, agencies that ONDCP oversees and it's about $35 billion. And you know, of course, all we're seeing is the rise in overdose deaths. You know, there was the one-time drop um, a year or so ago, but now, you know, it's right back up there. And so, you know, we have to look at how we're doing this and spending taxpayer dollars efficiently and effectively. Yep. I would like to re remind everybody that in, uh, among the uh, drug czars uh, is Michael Botticelli, uh, who went on 60 Minutes to talk about how a DUI arrest uh, for him uh, turned his life around, uh, that he has been in recovery for nearly 30 years now. Uh, and what turned his life around was that arrest. Uh, and I think people don't often understand uh, how people get into recovery. Uh, it often is in response to a crisis and then what they do with that to turn their lives around. And he is, he is one of my best friends and a wonderful leader. And it, it happened because of uh, a DUI arrest. And we don't often think about the fact of how law enforcement uh, is actually very helpful for lots of people in dealing with problems, especially in terms of uh, drug and alcohol problems. Here, here. Well, let me follow up on something uh, that several of you have talked about then, which is uh, budgetary appropriations money problems. Uh, we don't know, I think some one of you said, uh, how big a problem this is because people aren't testing. I know Bob mentioned that, others did too. Is, is this something that Congress should give the states money to do so that they can test, even if not for every state to do it, at least on a pilot project basis? You know, pick some different states and jurisdictions and test everybody who uh, was involved in a, the, every driver involved in a fatal accident for a whole range of drugs. Is that something that can be done this year to try to give us the info that we need to know how big a problem this is? Yes, it can be done this year. And there's a wonderful model also in shock trauma centers uh, to, to where the, you've got plenty of people there uh, to get half a dozen shock trauma centers around the country, which would give us real-time results about the relationship of what drugs are being used and how they are involved in people who are uh, in shock trauma units uh, for, who are drivers. Uh, that, that's something that's it's very accessible. But I think uh, also, Paul, the idea of having state experiments, encouraging states to experiment with DUI changes, like the, like the state of Michigan recently did with oral fluids, I think the states are the laboratories on this and using federal money to encourage uh, uh, model building that uh, can, can go forward, I think could make a huge difference and could incentivize the states uh, to, to uh, do some experimenting that uh, could lead to major changes. Let me give you another question we got from the audience. Um, 
we can't yet distribute roadside testing devices to all of our law enforcement officers? Should we train more law enforcement officers to be DREs and even phlebotomists so that uh, they can do something until we have uh, roadside devices that we can use on a very widespread basis? Well, I think we have devices now that we can use on a widespread basis, but I, I think the DU, uh, DREs is a, is a wonderful thing. It can't be the answer because you can't deploy enough of them uh, to do this, but that they are good. And, and I think it's been, uh, you know, it started, the DRE idea came from Los Angeles and NIDA was involved in that original research that led to the DREs. So the DREs is a great thing, but it can't be the, 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 the major basis because you just can't deploy enough people and get them to the accidents quickly. Yeah, I mean, these roadside devices are expensive also. A lot of them, you know, four or $5,000 a piece. That's really tough for some of these small departments to be able to afford to have enough of them out there. Um, and so, you know, with a breathalyzer these days for alcohol, you can, you know, buy one for personal use, you know, online. You can get one, you know, delivered to your house, you know, the next day with Amazon Prime, you know, so that you can sort of test yourself before going out there and here, you know, we don't have that ability to test, you know, for other drugs. And so we have to come up with a way to be able to test this efficiently and have a national standard that is recognized by the states. You know, remember, well, remember too, Paul, that uh, uh, actually after someone has been arrested and convicted usually of DUID, they are required at their own expense if they've been able to keep their driver's license uh, to install a breath testing piece of equipment within the vehicle that will not allow them to uh, turn the car on uh, uh, until after they have shown that, they, that they're free. I mean, these are the kind of technology things that we should be looking at uh, in the future, especially if somebody's been convicted of the UID. But that would sound like we could make this into a package. Uh, we could have legislation that give funding to states and localities for the devices, as well as uh, to do the drug testing uh, on a, you know, from a laboratory perspective. Even if we didn't do it nationwide, pick different jurisdictions and do it that are likely to be good ones. And then the results of that might inform what we do the following year in 2022. I mentioned that just, it, it seems like we need to know more. And until we know more, we won't be able fully to know how best to spend the dollars we have. And this would be a small scale way of doing it. Well, gang, let me say this. Uh, we have a ton more of questions, but we have uh, reached the end of nine innings. I know Gil, you and Jim and Bob and Barry have spent a lot of time preparing for this and you've spent all this time here today. I can't thank you enough on behalf of Heritage and myself. I appreciate all the time you spent today and before. I appreciate the wisdom that you have imparted to us and I'm hoping that the people take this to heart because this is a major problem we need to address and we can do it because it can be done in a bipartisan basis. With that, let me thank you very much and tell you that I always remain open to all of you uh, to help for any ideas. And with that, we're adjourned. Thank you.